You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Hey, Kensington, Sam Anderson, back on the streets of Detroit. We're here connecting with people, asking them about their favorite underdog story and if they've ever viewed themselves as an underdog of sorts. So let's connect with some people. Who is your favorite underdog? Rocky. Rocky Balboa? Yeah. Rocky Balboa. Oh, Rocky Balboa. Okay, all right. The Detroit Lions. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Do you think it's going to be the case next year, too? Uh, I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully not, but that's us every, the, that's us every that's offseason. Every Growing up in Detroit, I'd have to say the Lions. The 2004 Pistons team. I'm probably the uh, Philadelphia Eagles against the New England Patriots. U of M versus OSU. I okay. mean, in the last 10 years, we've been getting smoked by them. Would it be conceited to say myself? No, that's totally oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, myself. You're your favorite underdog? Yes. Maybe Jesus. He's yeah. going up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes and all those folks? Maybe so. Why is it that you think that we root for underdogs? Because I think sometimes, most of the times, everyone feels like we're the underdog, right? Most of the time, the underdog doesn't have enough means yeah. to compete with the, with the top one. And uh, also, people identify themselves with the underdog. Yeah. They see so, themselves as part yeah, of the story. Yeah, they see themselves like as uh, if they can do it, I can probably also do it. I think it's a good story. Yeah, I like I like that. I mean, you know, everyone, the odds and the favorites. So you got a lion's head on. I do. Who's always been the underdog? The Lions. Who is not it's heartbreak? Who is not right now the underdogs for the NFC? The Lions, right? I know. Yeah. So like that's why I've my heart is I've, so full of joy it might yes, burst out of my chest. Yes. Actually. And so I love that story. It's always inspiring to see somebody who is like you make it through like the ranks of whatever it is Everyone, they can't really identify with somebody who's favored a lot of yeah. people come you know disadvantaged situations because they don't feel like they're they favored. don't feel like they're favored in life yeah. so they, that's what they kind of identify with in life a lot of people feel like they can't catch a break uh, or that things just always go wrong for them uh, so seeing that when someone isn't projected to win and they pull it out yeah. it gives them a little faith that they're going to be able to do the same have you ever identified yourself as an underdog no Never. No, never. No. I'm a favorite. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I, <laughs> I was like, dang, that's a, okay. Yeah. I like that energy. What you got to be confident. <laughs> it could be basketball. Yeah. It could be chess. Yeah. You know, somebody yeah, got yeah, more yeah. experience than me. I feel like I'm the underdog. Okay. But, you know, if I just make this one right move, I'll be all right. Basketball game in high school, we yeah. were facing third grade. I didn't, I didn't peg you as a baller, <laughs> Javier. I come from Africa, and yeah. uh, we didn't have, like, enough resources. Sometimes, like, go months without electricity yeah but like i found a way to always make things work yeah to make it work and if i'm at the point i am today it's uh just to like not giving up yeah. and always believing that i can uh, do it i left my previous employer of 19 years to yeah. come to a new company oh wow and so like you know i'm looking at myself as the underdog i came from a very like poor background like one of those things where they didn't think i was even going to graduate like high school yeah um and I'm very proud of the fact that I not only did that, I went to college, you know, got a good job, okay, make more than, girl. yeah, right? Okay, yeah, that's what's up. I don't think so. No? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Like you're, you're ready. You're, you're ready. ready to go. Oh, for sure. Okay. Love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. Thank Perfect. you. Perfect. Thank you. Time. You too. Well, good morning, Kensington Church. Are you well this morning? Yeah, good morning. Amen. Good morning, Kensington Church. Are you well this morning? Come on, can we give Jesus praise in this place? Amen. Man, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Pastor John. I bring greetings 
from Mount Clemens, Michigan, New Anthem Church, and so blessed to be back here uh, in Lake Orion with my Kensington Church family. This is my hometown, so I love any reason and excuse uh, to come back here. Pretty much any time Pastor Craig asks me uh, to come preach, I say yes. Again, even though he has not yet come and preached at my church, whatever. It's a horrible friend. I've said that like the last three times a preacher still hasn't come, but it's fine. It'll, it's going to happen eventually. Um, so yes, I am a guest here with you today. I am not the pastor of this house. The real pastor is a better communicator. He'll be back next week. He's a much pastier individual, uh, but it'll be a lot of fun. So if you're a new guest with us, we want to say welcome. Hope it feels like home and like family to you. Uh, And I'm excited to be capping off our series today, The Measure of success, the measure of success. It's been awesome to catch up on where you guys are at in this series the last couple weeks, and it's really an honor to be sharing uh, this last installment of this collection of talks. Uh, Really, the subtitle of my message today is Seizing the Moment, Seizing the Moment. As you live your life, and if you're on this earth long enough, Eventually, in your Christian experience, God is going to call you in order to step forward into another season, a next season, to seize a moment. Living enough life will require you in some stage or some step to seize the moment. And and what does that look like in the context of the scripture we're reading today? Well, I think the answer might surprise you. We're going to be diving into uh, the Old Testament today. In 1980, there is this awesome story, true story of this of the U.S. hockey team, and they were going up against uh, the really it was an athletic giant at the time, dominating in sports, Russia. It, they made a famous movie about y'all, y'all seen the miracle. It's like my favorite sports movie ever. It is awesome. It is so intense. Kurt Russell is phenomenal in it. Has an absolute ridiculous haircut. It wears these ridiculous looking pants, but he blows a whistle. He's like, again, he's whipping the team into shape. It's one of my favorite movies because it's all about the underdog team, which was the U.S. team at the time, rising up to beat all odds to accomplish what everyone would call or say is the impossible. And it's really a powerful picture and a powerful story. There's something that's incredibly inspiring, that stirs, that invokes an immeasurable amount of passion in us inside when we see the odds pitted against someone and they rise to the occasion and they defeat the odds. When someone with no name becomes a known name, it's always a powerful Story, And I think the reason why it stirs so much within us is ultimately because for many of us, we go through our life and, and we are, see ourselves in this story. We have our own underdog experience. Depending on the season of life we're in, we, we could feel like we're the ones down at halftime. We're the ones that are facing a giant in a specific season. And to wrap up the series, we're going to be looking at a woman in the Old Testament who responded to her own giant who found a a different measure of success that that didn't ultimately just benefit her, but ultimately saved a nation. And so this gospel account, this underdog story we're going to be diving into, our character became more than, than simply a victim of their circumstance, but rose above all of that, believed that they could be used by God to do something significant. And so 
We're going to go to this Old Testament book that's only 10 chapters long. We're going to focus on the last piece of it, and our underdog hero today's name is Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Esther chapter 4. But before we dive into the word, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give a lot of background context, and then we're going to pull some observations from the text today. Does that sound good? Does that sound good to the rest of y'all? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for loving us. Thank you for using us and choosing us. God, we thank you for your written word. And right now, God, we not only submit to your word, but we remember and recognize that you are present here with us. Your spirit's presence is here with us and wants us to leave here changed transformed, renewed, and restored. So God, I pray for the person that maybe it took all the faith they had to just bring themselves through the door this morning. I pray for the person that's been struggling, doubting, feeling empty in their soul or in their faith. Would this be a turning point? I believe you have a special, specific, tailor-made word for every single individual in this room. And so God, we open up our hearts and we say, God, we, we sit, sit beside and stand beside our own preferences, our own way of even interpreting scripture. And we say, God, teach us what you would want us to learn, what you'd want us to receive today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Now, for some of you, if you're like me, you have a personal history when it comes to your underdog story. Maybe you have an underdog narrative in which becomes the lens that you look at life through that's ultimately been developed through your experience here on earth, things that you go through, things that you've been through. You live life long enough, you're going to experience some things, amen? This was true for me. Now, I was, uh, grew up in the metro Detroit area, specifically in, here in Lake Orion for the majority amount of time, and my dad retired from GM and then moved us up to a quaint little town called Indian River, Michigan, just south of Mackinac. Anyone know where Indian River is? Okay, I've said this before. This is where, like, white people originated from, right? <laughs> Whitest place on earth, Caucasia, right? Just a sea of white people everywhere, vastly different area than metro Detroit. And so um, it's this quaint little town with absolutely incredible people. But it was also a very isolated town with very ignorant people. You know what I mean? And so this is where I grew up. I didn't love it there, which is why I moved away. Now, there was more to my environment in Indian River than it just being this quaint little town. I, I, there was nine of us in my family, because my grandma had to move in with us, living in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. Now, Indian River is already in the middle of nowhere. We lived on the outskirts of Indian River, y'all. The place basically doesn't exist. It's barely on the map. This is where I live. Little trailer, nine of us, not including our animals, which we had so many of, way too many of. And so we're in this trailer in the middle of nowhere on a 10-acre plot of property. And here's what's interesting. As, as mean as some of the ignorant people, and there was an, a, a much larger number of awesome people in this community, but there was a select few that were very ignorant people, and sometimes they were the loudest, especially when it came to topics like this color of my skin. And so growing up dealing with these really ignorant people, as mean as they were and as awful as they were, what I found so interesting is not a single one of them ever came up to me and said the following, that I was a worthless piece of trailer trash. They never said that, not once. Not once did they ever say that to me. Now, why do I bring that up? Because in the deepest part of my being, that's what I believed. But I didn't believe it because I was taught it. 
I wasn't told that. In fact, at home, it was nothing but positive reinforcement. My dad, y'all, is like the most positive person, the most positive individual you could ever meet. He's like a, he's like a birthday clown. He's like, he's like Sam Anderson. He's like positive all the time. He laughs through everything. He just beat stage three cancer. And he would call me and crack, yeah, thank you. God is good. He healed him. 9 a.m. wasn't as excited about that. They're like, proceed. Anyways, he, he beat stage three cancer. He's calling me and cracking jokes about his chemo treatment. I'm like, dad, you can't crack jokes about chemo. But that's how I want to be. Like, he's so positive. So this wasn't a, like negative reinforcement that I was getting at home. It was something that was all going on in my mind based off of my experience, based off of my environment, that I was nothing but worthless trailer trash. And this, this affected so many other areas of my life. Now, another couple of attributes about my environment. We have had absolutely no money growing up specifically, and even less when we moved to northern Michigan. And so we didn't have a lot of money. And I ended up eventually going from doing really, really good in school to doing awful in school because along with the narrative that I was worthless trailer trash, I also believed that I was stupid because those two have to be intrinsically connected, right? So I started to do awful in school. And I did terrible in school until I somehow graduated, barely graduated, and then went to college. And then I learned that I wasn't stupid. I learned that I wasn't stupid. I ended up doing really, really good in college because I was in a different environment that was teaching me something different about that which I had chose to believe. So oftentimes in my life, I begin so many things with this underdog narrative based off of how I developed when I was younger. It's something I still battle with today, and I wonder if some of you today can relate to that. Now, why do I share all of this history? Because in a very real way, this is the setting that our hero in our story, Esther, was ultimately born into. Esther was born into this Hebrew people, God's chosen people, this group of Jews living in this land. And like so many times in Israel's history, they find themselves in captivity. In fact, they were in captivity for about 100 years up to this point. Their captors were a very ruthless, vile, toxic group of individuals that were so ruthless, famously ruthless, they're still making movies about them today. It's the Persian Empire. This Persian Empire, this people group, was led by a tyrant king, a famous king named King Xerxes. He was powerful, he was wealthy, he was ruthless, he was a drunk, he was a womanizer, he was all around a horrible human being, and we're gonna talk about just how horrible he was. And so here God's people are, these Hebrews living under this Persian rule. This, by the way, this was like 15 million Hebrews that were conquered and under this, this Persian reign. And so this is neither a safe life nor an easy life for these Jews. In fact, many of the Jews of the day decided to hide their Jewish heritage because of how they would be treated, most treated at best as second class or more realistically, no class citizens. And so we have this leader, King Xerxes, who's by the way is like the worst boss you could ever have. Y'all only think your boss that you have at work is awful. King Xerxes is on another level. 
okay? So there's actually writing both within scripture and outside of scripture that talk about just how horrible King Xerxes was. So this is the kind of boss King Xerxes was. He actually hired someone to just stand in his chambers with a giant ax, and if anyone came into his chambers and did any of the following, he would cut off their head. If they came without being called, offended the king, brought bad news to his chambers, or questioned the decision he made, off with their heads. And so no one could escape this ruthless nature of this king. And in the first chapter alone, we see King Xerxes banish his wife from his kingdom. Now you may ask yourself, why? What happened? So King Xerxes was at a party with some buddies. They were all getting drunk. And he asked his wife to come in and to flaunt herself for him and all of his friends. And she had the audacity to say no. Divorce. This is a horrible human being. This is a horrible leader. And so King Xerxes now needs a new wife. This is actually where Esther comes into the picture within our story. Because now, now King Xerxes needs a new wife. And so he does, does what any king would do. He has hundreds of young virgins that were in the area come and parade through his palace, and he basically just went on a shopping spree to pick out his new wife. And so all of these women come in, and Esther is chosen. And so let's talk about Esther. Who is she? Her background, she was a young Hebrew girl. Her parents died at a very young age, and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai meant everything to her, basically became a father figure to her. And so Mordecai is raising her, and, and King Xerxes, he sees Esther, he chooses Esther. They're married for about five years. Within this five years, there's not much that's noteworthy about their relationship. But the, the important detail in the story is that there is this brewing tension between Mordecai and this final character, Haman. Haman was the second in command, the second most powerful man in this region. He was the second in command. He was basically like a bully. He was like a, a little sidekick punk bully who just kind of followed the school bully around. And so there's, there's this tension between Haman and Mordecai. They didn't just dislike each other, they hated each other. And this produced a tension in their families that actually went back for generations, almost like the biblical Hatfield and McCoys. And so here Mordecai is, he worked in the palace, Haman being the second in command of the empire means they had to see each other all the time even though they didn't want to. And then everything comes to a head when Haman goes ahead and makes a decree stating that whenever anyone is in his presence, they need to bow down and worship at his feet. Mordecai submits to his Jewish heritage. I am only bowing to God. I'm not going to bow to you. And then Haman has the most ridiculous overreaction. Haman's reaction isn't to use his words, isn't to even use his fists. No, he builds 75-foot-tall spikes in his backyard that he was going to impale not only Mordecai on, but then all of the other Hebrews in the land, which I'll remind you, 15 million. 
And this is where we catch up in our story. Mordecai sends word to Esther. Esther, you're now five years into this marriage. You need to use your influence. You need to do something here because it's not just me who's going to die, but all of your tribe, all of your people, we're going to die. You need to do something. And Esther responds. And this is where we're going to punch into our story this morning. Esther chapter 4 verse 10 says this. Then she instructed him, saying to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you will remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who were in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so the question for us this morning is, how does the story end? And I'm not going to tell you. I do want to encourage you to go back and read the end of the story, but the end of the story isn't actually the point of the message. I, I, I want to give some details that will help give context to where we're going this morning. Israel at this time, God's chosen people, were in a season like so many times in Israel's history where they had become lukewarm at best in their faith in their walk with God, that as a nation, they were nominal followers. It was more about the religiosity, a hat tip to the past and where they came from, and not about faith. This is why there's nothing noteworthy in the story of Esther about how faithful God's people were. You will not see any, any information given like that within this story. Now, this is really significant because this means assuming that, that Esther and Mordecai were some of the few that were these lukewarm at best followers of God. These two people, with all the odds stacked against them, decided in this moment to get serious about their faith, about their family, and stand and face the odds that were against them no matter the outcome. And so they chose to see the opportunity in front of them as God's plans laid out for them. And so I want to talk this morning about how we measure success through the context of this story. How do we measure success from the context and the attributes that we'll pull from the story? Before we answer that question, I want us to consider how Mordecai and Esther could have responded in this situation. Because they could have responded how many of us would respond in a situation this intense. And that is to wallow in the reality of the current circumstance. Mordecai could have just said, I don't know what to do. I'm not a believer. I haven't walked with God. My daddy didn't walk with God. My granddaddy didn't walk with God. We said we're believers. That kind of makes us hypocrites. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I'm a coward. I have this adopted daughter that I just handed off to this, this tyrant king who thinks he's a god who's actually a pervert. And so what am I 
supposed to do. And, and now, because of where I'm at, 15 million of my people, my tribe, are going to be murdered. You know, let's just, let's just call it, someone just make some herbal tea, let's just put on a Spotify playlist of country music. And... But Esther could have done the same thing. Esther could have played the same game, wallowing in the reality of the current circumstance. I'm just a girl. I married a king, but I don't have any real authority. I don't make decisions. I've never made any real decisions. People make them for me. I've lied about my heritage. I haven't taken my faith seriously. This whole situation is far too big, and I am far too small to deal with the situation. And yet, in our text that we just read, the question Mordecai poses to Esther is the same question that at some point in our faith journey, every single one of us will have to face. And here it is. That perhaps God has placed us, placed you, Esther, where you are for such a time as this. Success in this account is measured by us looking for and finding our for such a time as this moments. We need to find our for such a time as this moments. What if I told you that where you are today isn't by accident? What if I told you even the seat that you were sitting in? Some of you are here and you think that you're here simply because someone drug you here. Maybe you took all the faith you had just to bring yourselves through the doors, but what if I told you it wasn't by chance, it wasn't even by your own choice, but by design and divine appointment? What I'm talking about today is something called God's providence. And this is a reality that God is so big and so powerful and so holy and has such a masterful plan that he is lining up your life to do something to sp specific, which is to lead you into what John 10.10 10 says is abundant and fruitful life. This means that nothing is by chance or happenstance, but by the hand of God. Well, I don't know, Pastor John. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I gotta tell you, I really don't like my job. So I don't know, like, I, I hate it, actually. It's awful. It's, I don't like the people I work with. But what if I told you even that job that you hate, that God has a plan for you there, that God might have you there for such a time as this. God has a purpose. Even in pain, God has a purpose for it. God has a mission, even for the mystery and the things that we don't feel like we understand about our life. God has a direction for it. God has a plan. God has an end game in mind. And God stacks the chips in your favor to lead you into to abundant life. This is true even for your relationships, even for that person that you can't stand, even for that spouse that you can't stand. Hello. <laughs> well, we've been talking a long time, and I don't know, we might split, and, and, and we just, I don't know, our relationship is toxic, we don't enjoy each other, we don't have, and what if in all of that misery, God's wanting to turn all of that around, do something supernatural in your marriage that would become something beautiful that points to heaven? See, everything can change in a moment when we recognize the power of God's providence. But can I tell you, you need to look for these moments, these for such a time as this moments. 
You gotta look for them. And we need to pray that God would give us God lenses to see the things that he's doing. Sometimes behind the scenes, because I can tell you, for many of us, the real for such a time as this moment aren't the big things, aren't these big grandiose things, because many of us, we would say instantly, man, I want that, I want that. I'm gonna be looking for God to send me a sign. And we're looking up into the stars and we're looking for the clouds to form letters and tell us the direction of our life and tell us what God is wanting us to do. Can I tell you, it's usually in the small things. It's usually in the small things. What do I mean by that? Well, we're gonna come back to that idea in a moment. I want you to just tuck that away, that it's in the small things. We're gonna come back to that in just a moment. But success in this, count, in this gospel account is measured by us looking for, for such a time as this, moments. Number two, it's measured by us listening to our Mordecai. See, Esther had to listen to the person, to this father figure that was sent to be a guide for her and a direction for her and an encouragement for her. She had to listen. She had to respond. She had to do something based off this encouragement that Mordecai was saying, no, you can do this. You can be bold. You do have a purpose. You do have a mission that you're not just where you are by chance, but to save God's chosen people. God tends to put people in our life to challenge us in specific moments, to move us, to push us, to prod us into the direction in the future that he has for us. And I'll give you an example. Several years ago, before my wife and I launched our church, God was stirring church planting on the heart of my wife and I. But we didn't know what to do with it, right? Because we weren't at a season where we're like, we're definitely ready to launch a church. In fact, we felt the opposite. See, our background was in youth ministry. 15 years, y'all, in youth ministry. Some of y'all are like, that's 15 years too long, pastor. Like, we get what's wrong with you. 15 years in youth ministry. And listen, I thought I was gonna be in youth ministry forever. Like, I thought I was gonna be the guy, 50, 60 years old, still crushing it, killing it, relevant, and somehow not creepy. <laughs> and y'all, I didn't even make it to 30. Like, I didn't mean like, at 30 I became creepy. I mean, at 30, I was done with youth ministry. You know what I mean? Like, I used to wake up and I was just like, oh man, let's go change the lives of some youth, you know? And then I woke up, I'm like, gosh, I hate these kids. And it like happened in a moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, and don't be offended. I don't work in the youth ministry here. It's fine. We don't even have a youth ministry at New Anthem. I wonder why. Anyways, <laughs> like, I just was done. I was done. And so what God started to stir in my heart is, is what I'm doing now. Like, I loved, I loved it, but I didn't think I was ready for it because all that I heard in my early youth ministry years was, you just have too much energy. You have too much passion. You're going to scare people away. In fact, in my old church, all of my staff, all of the staff there would call me and my lead pastor a squirrel on crack. <laughs> yeah. And how many know a squirrel on crack shouldn't be pastoring a church? You know what I mean? Like literally, but also figuratively, shouldn't be pastoring a church. And so this, is, this went back to the underdog narrative, right? Like that's all I am. That's all I am is a squirrel on crack. I shouldn't be leading a church. And so... God was putting something on my heart and it was like torture because I'm like, God, clearly I'm not ready. I don't have enough life experience. I'm old enough to be launching a church. And so, but this is what you're stirring on my heart. At least I think you are. Maybe this is just me. I don't really know, but I don't really know what to do with it. And all the while God was pushing and prodding me towards this. And I ended up getting a call 
from my good friend Patrick Holden, who used to pastor Kensington, Traverse City, and, and then launched a church in Columbus. And, and uh, he was still in Traverse City, and, he, and he's like, hey, when you're in town, I want to get together with you. I want to hear what God's doing in your life and your ministry. And, uh, and so I was like, I got, I got nervous, because I knew that this was going to be a God moment. I knew God was going to use him in some way to speak something, to challenge me something, because it, it just always happens, especially with this guy. So I, I, I saw his call. I didn't even pick up the phone at first. I didn't. I was like, I don't want to talk to you. Then finally, I pick up the phone. He's like, yep, I want to get together. Let's connect. So, so we, we, we end up going out to lunch. I'll never forget. It was Panera Bread in Traverse City, Michigan. It was new at the time. And uh, so we sit down, and he's like, hey, what, what's God doing in your life? How's your ministry? How's the youth going? I'm like, I can't do youth ministry anymore. I'm done. He's like, okay, well, what do you, what do you feel called to do? What, do you, what do you feel like is next? And I lied to him. I said, I don't know. And he pauses for like 10 seconds, which felt like 30 seconds. And he looked at me and he said, you're going to launch a church. Like, he didn't ask me. He told me I was going to launch a church. Like, it was like God was speaking through him in that moment. Like, you need to stop the charade. You need to stop playing games. You need to stop with this, oh, I'm not equipped to do that. And you just need to step out on obedience with the passion that I've put in your heart. And everything changed in that moment. Everything changed in that moment. I responded to him. I'm like, I am going to launch a church. That's what I was going to say, but I didn't feel like I could say it. I'm crying. It was just a really ugly, like, scene. But, and then what happened? He's like, well, let me make some calls. What's his first call? He calls Dave Wilson, who connects me to Craig McGlasson and a bunch of other people within Kensington, which is the only reason we were even able to launch a church to begin with. What is that? God's providence. God's providence. God's hand of leading. God's direction. And so going back to our story, here's what I hear Mordecai saying is, Esther, God is in control. He's, you've made some bad decisions. There's been even some sin involved, but, but God is in control, and, and maybe he even wants to be a part of this decision. And the same is true for us. How many would say, like, this is me, Pastor John. I look at my life. I feel like I'm the one that's down to half time. I've made some mistakes. There's certain areas that I'm like, this part of my life is horrendous. It's difficult. There's issues. I'm compromised. God can still use you, friend, but you got to pick up the phone. You got to listen to your Mordecai. You got to listen to the people that God's put in your life to point you into the destiny that God has for you, the next that God has for you, the future that God has for you. I have so many different people like this in my life, but it's not enough to just listen to our Mordecai to look for, or for such a time as this moment. We also need to acknowledge what we can't ignore. We need to acknowledge what we can't ignore. What do I mean by that? God has this annoying way of keeping where he wants us, what he wants us to do next, right in front of us. Remember I said sometimes these big moments, we're looking for these massive big moments. Sometimes it's in the little things. It's usually in the things that we would be very quick to label coincidences or happenstance when we're completely discouraged and we scroll through something on social media, that we read something, a verse, a text, or listen to a message clip, and it's the exact message we needed to hear, the exact encouragement we needed to hear, we're like, oh, that's funny. No, that is the hand of God reaching out to you, giving you clues at where he wants you to be. When we're feeling lost, we're feeling confused, we're feeling lonely, and the person calls us out of the blue, and I just felt like I wanted to call, I just wanted to encourage you, I just wanted to, we call it happenstance, we call it chance, that is God's sovereignty, that is God's encouragement to you. 
keeping it in front of you. You see, we can't ignore. We can't ignore what God is calling us to do, where he's calling us to go. This is the spirit of God more times than not, whispering to the deepest part of our soul, this is your for such a time as this moment. This is the moment I've created you for. This is the moment I've taken you. We have to acknowledge it. Number four, as we close, we need to sometimes choose a more difficult path. Success in this account is measured by us sometimes choosing the more difficult path. And I can tell you that as a culture, as a society, even within the church, that we need to start shedding this idea of choosing the path of least resistance, of just kind of going with the flow, of just kind of riding with the tide. And I'm not talking about in our attitude or how we treat people. No, no, no. I'm talking about in the context of our relationship with God because the truth is this. In God's economy, oftentimes the blessing, the abundant life, the amazing season that we've been praying for, it's on the other side of not the easy thing, but the hard thing. It's on the other side of the the thing that's difficult to do, that we have to humble ourselves to do, that we have to work or stay up late to do. It's in the hard thing. And so we can't have it in our minds that we're going to get there by simply choosing the path of least, least resistance. Thank God this is not what Esther did. The easy thing for her to do was to enjoy the palace life, enjoy the riches, the clout of being the wife of the most powerful man in the known world. The easy thing for Mordecai to do, well, was to bow down to Haman, to ignore his Jewish heritage. No, these both were doing the difficult thing, doing the hard thing, not wanting to miss a moment that maybe they were created for. I've come to a place and a space in my life where I would just rather die doing what I was made for rather than miss the times that God would say, you're here for such a time as this. You're here for such a time as this. Now at this juncture in our messages, we're wrapping things up. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, that's great for you, Pastor John. But for me, I, I, I can't tell you the last time I heard from God. I've felt the presence of God in my life. I can't tell you the last time I felt close to God, seen God's hand, seen God work in or through my life. So that's great that you're talking about this, this great moment for you, this, this moment this, for such a time as this moment, but I haven't even heard or felt the God that's supposed to communicate this moment. And if that's you today, I have the greatest encouragement for you. And the greatest encouragement for you is found in the reality of the hidden message behind the book of Esther. You see, there's one character that you will not see anywhere in this text, in the book. If you go read all 10 chapters of Esther, and there's a very specific, very important character that you won't see. And the hint for you is that this character created everything. The God of heaven, the God of the universe is not mentioned in this book once. A book about the salvation of his chosen people, who the book of Habakkuk says is the apple of God's eye, the most center of his affection. 
God isn't mentioned in. God isn't even mentioned in talking to Esther. Well, well, then God had to teach Esther. Then God spoke to Mordecai and told him. Then God moved on behalf of that you won't find it. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because the rest of the Bible is about the glory of the God of the universe. From Genesis to Revelations, you could wrap the entire narrative of Scripture into these three words, God with us, whether we're talking about creation, God entering his creation in the form of a man named Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, what is that but God with us? Even the book of Revelations where God's going to reconcile everything back to himself, it is God with us. And so now here we are punching into a story in the Old Testament, the only part of the really about God is just that it's about God's people who have mostly rejected him and yet God's still the author. And yet God is still protecting his people in a story that he isn't even mentioned in. And so what's the reality for every single one of us? That whatever part of your current human experience that you are struggling to experience, to feel the presence of God, to hear the voice of God, to have any sense of God in your life, he is still the author. He's still the author of your life. And even in the unknown, even in the lack, and even in the seeming silence, God is still present. He didn't leave his chosen people, and he has not left you. He is present, and he is wanting even this momentary season of silence to be something that becomes a testimony of his goodness, that he turns around for his glory to finish the beautiful story he's wanting to write in and through your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you for all of these men and women. God, I thank you for every individual under the sound of my voice. God, we turn our attention to you in this morning. And I just pray for the person that is here struggling, doubting, or feeling like they can't hear, experience you, feeling like they're the underdog, They're the underdog that doesn't get access to you. They don't get to be a varsity Christian because of their mistakes, their failures, their past, where they grew up, the way they grew up. And God, yet your message for us, the message for us in the book of Esther is that you take the underdog and you move them from a pit, from poverty to the palace for no other reason other than that you are good. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.